Thanks, Chris. Hey everyone, my name is Ming. I'm one of the pastors here at Uni Church. It's great to be here with you all. Uh, after this, we'll have our usual question time. We've got a special guest as well, so please do encourage you to uh, pop in your questions so that we can have a, a great time, cracking time then. Uh, but as we, before we dig in, uh, why don't we pray together and ask God to help us understand. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray that as we spend some time in your word today, uh, we do thank you that you have spoken to us. Uh, and that we can hear from you, learn from you, how we might live in this world uh, and live in honor of you. So please help uh, our concerns be, uh, help your concerns be our concerns, uh, and may we uh, drink deeply from your word tonight. Uh, we ask for help in this by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. As you heard today's Bible reading today being read, did you feel a little awkward? You know, as Chris read our Bible passage, did you perhaps cringe at certain words or concepts that came up. Maybe you don't mind those words or concepts yourself, but you started to think, I wonder if there's someone here who's going to find these words confronting, perhaps even offensive. Maybe you're glad you didn't bother inviting your friend along today. Maybe you are that friend who has come along. We are so glad that you're here with us today. Today, we are looking at a Bible passage that I think in our day and age would be really easy to feel embarrassed about. This passage talks about roles in a marriage relationship that today many people laugh at and mock. Lots of people think that the notions of leadership and submission in a marriage relationship are just, are just relics of a bygone era. And often this is not just seen as, as some neutral relic. A lot of people feel that this model of marriage is a leftover evil from oppressive patriarchal forms of society found in the ancient world. So it's really tempting for me to start a talk like this almost, almost apologizing, apologizing for God's lack of progressive development. It's tempting for me to just settle for teaching something less, you know, perhaps settle for just convincing you that, you know, although it feels a little confronting and outdated and oppressive, because it's God's word, we just got to suck it up and do it. I don't want to do that. See, the cultural pressure our society places on us is so powerful I'm tempted to come to our passage apologizing for teaching God's wisdom. But what a mistake that would be. It would just show that when it comes to making marriage work, I'm listening to the culture around me more than I'm listening to God himself. Do I really believe that God's wisdom for marriage has become outdated? Do I really believe that God's model for marriage only worked in the ancient world? Do I really believe that my progressive culture has better wisdom about how to make marriage work? The answer to all three of these questions is no way. See, if we want to get a right handle on marriage, or a right handle of anything in this world for that matter, we need to listen to the one who invented it. See, this is not simply what I think about marriage. Now, I haven't got much to offer. I've made tons of mistakes. It's not like I have a PhD or I'm an expert or anything. But what, I really want to, but what we really want to see is God's view of marriage. And what we see today is, this is not just for married people, nor is it just for Christians. God's view of marriage is a sign for all humanity of something bigger, greater, and more amazing than we might first realize. So whatever background you might have, wherever you currently stand with God, whatever presuppositions you might have with this passage or marriage in general, I want to ask, will you give this passage a chance to speak on its own terms? Will you weigh 
what God is saying carefully before assigning it to the ideological scrap heap. Because if you give this passage a fair hearing, I'm confident that you'll be surprised by what God has to say to us today, whether you are married or not. So let's get into it. If you're following along in your outlines, which I think they're blank, uh, I've got slides to help us out. We're at point one. This is submission. One of the keys to understanding any passage is to look at the passage in its context. Everything has a context. And that's why we didn't start today's passage at verse 22. You might have thought, oh, that's an awkward start. Uh, But we actually need to backtrack to last week's passage to see some really important connections. All right, so have a look with me from verse 18. It's up on the screen. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. See, last week we saw this interesting command, right, to be filled by the Spirit. And we saw that it involves four sub-commands, behaviors that align with God's Spirit. And so being filled by the Spirit means listening to the Spirit's Word in the Bible, so having input, fuel from it, and then living out the Spirit's desired behaviors, having output from that input. Now, one of those desires, if you notice, was all about submission. And what this means is submitting is to appropriate leadership is a Spirit-filled action. In fact, submission is at the very heart of the Christian life. So if you're a Christian, your very salvation depended on submission. The gospel tells us that Jesus went to the cross in submission to the plan of his Father in heaven. But even more than that, to secure our salvation, Jesus voluntarily submitted himself to the human authorities who put him to death. Our very salvation is dependent on the submission of Jesus. And all this reminds us that submission, at its very heart, is a strong trust in God. See, ultimately, submission is a recognition of God as God, that God knows better than us. He's the creator. He's Lord over all things. And he's built into the fabric of our world order and certain leadership roles. Now, a really important question to ask is, when verse 21, when it says, submit to one another, is it saying to every Christian to every Christian? Or is it leader and submitter in appropriate situations? And this is a really good and important question. Because some Bible interpreters have argued that this submission is taught to mean everyone to everyone. That it's completely symmetrical and reciprocal in every way. But I'm not convinced of that for two reasons. All right? So the first reason is logical. Now, I grew up in a very traditional Asian family, right? Uh, and whenever my family went to a Chinese restaurant with another family, the evening always ended up in a fight. Now, if you know anything about Asian families, you know what kind of fight I'm talking about. It's a fight for who pays for the bill. Now, you know, I, my mom would rush off to the counter, and then my auntie would then chase after her, and then one of them would be waving their card in the air, the other one would be stuffing cash down their pocket, and sometimes... Or even end up physical. (laughs) If this submission means everyone to everyone, it's like two people trying to walk through the door and saying to each other, no, you go. No, you go. No, 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 you go. And nothing ever ends up happening. 
there is a real logical issue with this. But even more than that, secondly, we need to think about context. And context isn't just about what came before, but also what comes after. And so starting from the very next verse, verse 22, we start to see how submission is lived out appropriately in three sets of asymmetrical relationships. So this week we're looking at husbands and wives, but next week we'll look at children and parents and slaves and masters. So you can think of verse 21 as kind of like the headline of these relationships that we'll unpack over the next couple of weeks. But even more than just the context of our passage, in the context of the whole Bible, we see Christian submission is not simply symmetrical or reciprocal. So let me just give you a couple of examples. In James chapter 4, verse 7, we're called to submit to God himself. There's also the authorities of the land and government in Titus chapter 3, verse 1. And there's also your leaders at church in Hebrews 13, verse 17. Just some examples. Submission to appropriate leadership is a very Christian virtue. If you're seeking to follow God's pattern in relationships, you'll soon realize we're all in some relationships where we submit and others where we lead. And now you might be thinking, all right, you might be thinking through all my relationships and wondering, you know, am I on this side here? Am I leading here? Or am I submitting here? In all honesty, it can get pretty complicated sometimes. Before I was a pastor here at Uni Church, I was a student minister at a church in Sydney. And in the connect group I was leading, there was a police officer. And so for us, leadership and submission could change depending on the moment, depending whether it was a police matter where he leads and I submit, or a church matter where I was leading and he was submitting. And submitting to him didn't mean that he was more valuable than me. Him submitting to me didn't mean that he was less competent or capable or smart than me. But see, the point is, even in the same group of people, the leader and submitter can change depending on context. So the question is, how do you work that out? The key is, in every relationship, to work out whether your role is to lead lovingly or submit to the leadership of another. And thankfully, God hasn't left us in the dark, right? He's spoken about relationship principles of leadership and submission, and we can extrapolate from there. Next week, we'll get to unpack this and think about this a bit more. But for now, let's have a look at the example today of marriage. This is the next point in your outlines, the model. So, moving on, verse 22 will be up on the screen. It says this. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Simple, isn't it? It's straightforward, it's clear, and it's terribly politically incorrect. Because of that word, submission. You know, we hear that word and go, Ugh. does it demean woman? Does it question the equality of, woman and, of men and women? No, no, it doesn't. The Bible is very clear that men and women are equal in God's eyes. Just like how we heard earlier in, our, in Ephesians, how Jews and Gentiles, introverted and extroverted, French or Korean, all of us are equal in God's eyes. But we are different. And so we have to think, what is submission? In primary school, my friends and I, we used to play this game called Mercy. Have you heard of that game? 
It's where we lock fingers and wrestle each other and twist and turn, trying to force the other to submit and scream out mercy, and then we'd stop. And then the winner would be like, I beat you. Uh, I, I, I didn't really like this game. I always backed down from challenges. I never did it. But my mate Faraz, he got into a match, right, and he was super stubborn. And he, didn't res- he resisted this guy. He was clearly being overpowered. And the other guy ended up spraining his wrist. I worry that that view of submission, the USC wrestler view of submission, is a little too popular in our society and is shaping the way that we understand God's word. Christian submission is actually a beautiful expression of Christian freedom. Christian submission is always voluntary. Never in the Bible is submission said to be forced upon. In verse 22, it does not say, Husbands, make your wife submit. It's asked of the wife, and it's her voluntary choice to submit. Now, I can't stress this part enough, all right? This command is given to the wife, not given to the husbands to enforce. And also note, the wife isn't to submit to every man either, just her husband. I need to be clear here. Husbands or future husbands and men here, the Bible never gives you the right to say to your wife or woman, you must submit. Never. However, it is the right and godly response of a wife to submit to her own husband. Now, I know society tells us that to submit to someone is to devalue yourself, but that's just simply not true, is it? You know, I submit to traffic lights all the time, and I don't feel any inferior to them. Submitting to traffic lights is for my own good and for the good of society. Your value is not determined by your job or your income or the number of followers that you have on Instagram, let alone who submits to you or who you submit to. You are valuable because God made you in his image, and you can't get any more valuable than that. Did you also notice in verse 24, wives are called to submit to their husbands in everything. Living this kind of submission in marriage is going to take courage, wisdom, patience, and love. And I don't want to step away from how difficult this really is. And a lot of the time, it's really difficult because men abuse their position in a marriage relationship. But at the same time, it's important to realize that Christian submission is never just blind, unthinking obedience. Wives aren't meant to be a doormat where they just do whatever the husband tells them to. God's view of marriage is complementary. Now, we'll come back to that shortly, but I just want to stress that if any leader commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, it's right and proper to refuse to submit to the authority, even if they're your husband. God is always the higher authority. Christian submission is not the same as how our, how our world views submission. Christian submission is a trust and dependence on the loving headship, commitment, and faithfulness that Jesus displayed for his church. That's what God wants for people to catch a glimpse of in marriage. That's what marriages are models of, Christ and the church. Now, growing up, my grandfather owned a, a small collection of about five cars, and he wanted me to have them and inherit them when I grew older. But because I'm here in New Zealand, he was all the way in Malaysia, he had to store them away. Now, before you think, wow, Ming's grandparents must be super wealthy and have this giant property to store those cars, my grandparents actually lived in a small village, and all his cars were scale models. These, 
These cars are models, very realistic models. You know, the doors open, the wheels turn, they even have little engines and wiring under the bonnet. These models give you a very realistic and a pretty good idea of what an actual car is like. And in the same way, Christian marriage is one where those involved recognize they're part of a very realistic scale model. It's wonderful and valuable in its own right, but it's also representative of something much larger and more wonderful, the relationship between Christ and his church. And so the model we're looking at reminds us that submission is not a negative thing. Let me ask, if you're here today and have been saved by Jesus, was it demeaning, devaluing, or humiliating to have to submit to Jesus as your Lord or Savior? Most Christians I know speak about the day where they submitted to Jesus as their Lord and Savior as the, most greatest, as the greatest day of their life. We must let the relationship between Christ and the church teach us what both submission and leadership are all about. So that's one side of the equation, submission. But what about the other? What's the other side of the equation? What's the complement to submission? So this is the next point in your outline. It should be up on the screen. But as we get there, quick word association game up on the screen. Tea and coffee. Fork and? No. No, no, I know, I know. You know if you're an Asian, it's spoon. I'm, I'm, I'm not fully westernized yet. Fish and? Chips. Great, great. We're all Kiwis. Submission and? Submission and what? You see the trap there? I nearly got you. What is the complement to submission? The command to the husband is not exercise your authority. It's not take charge or take command or lead. It's not be the boss. The complement that corresponds to submission is love. Husbands are commanded three times in this passage to love their wives. So let's just have a look at the first verse, which is directed at the husband. It's in verse 25 up on the screen. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. This love that is being commanded is not just some vague feeling of love. Love is never just about feelings. Love is about choices, actions, and sacrifices. And the kind of love being commanded here is the love that Jesus showed by sacrificing himself for the good of his church. And so for us husbands or future husbands, this means leading our wives through, through sacrifices for her sake. To put the good of our wives before our rugby game. To put the good of our wives before the food we like to eat. To put the good of our wives before our desires to be right in an argument. To be a person who serves in raising your children, even after a hard day at work. To be a person who serves in sex, serves in the home, who doesn't shirk his responsibilities. And when there is a conflict, husbands are to set aside their own desires to be right and be the one who, like Jesus, lays down his life. And so it means not waiting back and thinking, I'll just wait for her to say sorry. Just like Jesus, husbands are to take the initiative in loving, forgiving, and sacrificing for the good of their wife. Last year, Angela and I got into a pretty heated argument, and 
I was totally defensive about it. I was totally defensive about the way that I handled it, the tone of my voice, the things I was saying. And I remember getting so defensive. Uh, to, we got to, I got my baby monitor, and our baby monitor records the last 24 hours to play back to Angela the argument, just so, you know, I'm right here, right? <laughs> After hearing my own voice, my heart sunk. I was actually really shocked to hear the way I responded. The way I spoke to Angela was far from the model that Jesus shows his church and loves his church. See, the reality is, this kind of love is incredibly hard. And Angela and I know this happens, still happens today, and we've talked about it, I'm aware of it, but it's still hard to make noticeable changes. But each and every day, I need, I need to ask myself the question, as people look at my marriage, are people reminded of Christ's love for his church? Does my wife, does Angela, get reminded for Christ's love for her? When she stumbles, makes mistakes, doesn't meet my standards, how do I respond? Is it with anger or frustration? Or is it patience, compassion, the same forgiveness that Jesus has shown her? Now, we need to be careful, a bit careful with this model uh, because we can overinterpret. So have a look with me at the next few verses. It's up on the screen. We are to love just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. You see, some people read this part and think the husband's job is to present their wives holy and without blemish. And this scares me. Because there's only one man who can do that, and it's not any of us here. The only man who can make people holy, who can present people holy and without blemish, is Jesus. But this does tell us the ultimate goal of our love. See, a husband's primary concern is for his wife's spiritual growth, her relationship with God. A lot of my high school mates who have now gotten married, uh, they really love their wives. You can see it on their Facebook posts or their Instagram posts. But they, tr- they, sh- they show their love to their wife by, you know, earning more money, taking her on a skiing holiday trip, or getting bigger and nicer houses. And none of these are inherently bad or sinful. They're, they're good in their own right. But this isn't the kind of love that a spirit-filled husband is primarily concerned about. The primary concern is his wife's relationship with God. So, husbands or future husbands... Imitate Christ's love, but you cannot imitate the cleansing. Let's keep reading. Verse 28 to 31, it's up on the screen. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Just look at how much love is required of the husband. These verses are not just pushing husbands to love their wives like they love themselves. These verses are saying to love his wife is to love himself because they have become one in marriage. These verses, they're taking us right back to the very beginning of creation, where the first marriage ever saw two people, two individuals, becoming one in this profound marriage unity. And so marriage, it's not just two individuals who simply live together. 
Marriage is the wife and husband united as one, functioning together as one, under one head, Jesus. And so the question is, what does this look like? What does it look like to function as one? Think of it like a dance. A Christian husband leads by listening to the music. The music of Jesus Christ, his word, the Bible. And the wife listens, she listens to that exact same music, follows her husband's lead to that music, and they move as one because of that music. It's this wonderful back and forth dance where husbands lead and the wife partners, both listening to Jesus. And what makes this dance so beautiful is that they complement each other. Now look, there's going to be really clumsy moments in this dance, I get it. They might step on each other's toes, they'll need to review each other's dance moves, but the important thing, the important thing is that they are humbly both keeping in step with Jesus' words and looking to love and serve one another. Now, Angela and I, my wife Angela and I, we have tons of disagreements. You know, what am I spending my time on, the way I speak to our kids, even with little things like how much I'm eating, you know, should I get that upsize at Macca's? And more often than not, Angela's totally right, and I'm wrong. And my, but my job, it isn't to mold Angela into another Ming, just saying and doing what I want, affirming me. My job is to lead in partnership with Angela, listening to her, to set the direction of our family together under Christ. Now, isn't it interesting that this passage, and this is connected, doesn't specify what exactly this complementary partnership should look like in every single case? And that's because God's made us all different. You know, he's made some women more extroverted than their husbands, some husbands less planned or methodical than their wives. And this is why we need to be really careful about saying a husband leading looks like ABC, or a wife submitting looks like not doing XYZ. That's legalism. In Jesus, God's given us the model, he's given us principles, and he's given us the freedom to follow his design for marriage. All right, there's still lots more I could go into, but we need to keep going, so I'm going to leave that there. I want to take this moment now to step back and ask the obvious question, why is it so hard to follow this model? Why don't we see this more? Uh, this is the next point, which should go on your outlines, the challenge. Why is it so challenging? Why don't we see this in marriage all the time? Reason number one is me. I'm the reason why it's so hard to follow this model. And if you don't mind me saying so, you are too. Our sin affects both sides of this model. My sin affects the way I offer sacrificial loving leadership. My sin means I'm more likely to look out for myself than care for someone else. My sin means I will tend to use my leadership for my own good and purposes. And my leadership ends up being about my authority rather than my responsibility to love and care. Sin affects leadership in all sorts of ways. God's model of marriage isn't just one person having a say in everything. Sacrificial, Christ-like love never demands their own way. And this is why abuse and domestic violence is never okay. If you are experiencing domestic violence, you need to know that is not what God wants, whether that's from your husband or someone else. So please, let me encourage, encourage you to take up the courage to talk to someone. Talk to me, talk to Rowan, talk to one of the other pastors, maybe a connect group leader. We are ready to listen and want to do everything we can to help. 
And if you're someone who, who's, you know, maybe heading down that direction, maybe, you know, losing their anger a little bit, also talk to someone about it. All of us fall short. None of us are perfect, but forgiveness is available to all. So that's reason number one, me or sin, whichever one you want to put. But the second reason why this model is so hard is that our society is made up of lots of people like you and me, people who use leadership selfishly and don't naturally want to submit to God or anyone else. And so sin has shaped our culture more than we realize. The abuse of leadership positions has meant people can no longer entrust themselves in submission to others because it's way too scary being oppressed or abused. The abuse of leadership positions has meant our society looks at submission as something weak or pathetic now. An abusive patriarchal leadership has been so damaging that women have united together against it in feminism. See, feminism has rightly diagnosed a serious problem. But feminism is not the answer to that problem. Replacing abusive patriarchal leadership with feminist individualism doesn't get us back to God's model for marriage. Feminism isn't looking to restore God's model for marriage. It just keeps coming back to this adversarial struggle where each side is looking to raise themselves up by putting the other side down. And the problem with this is someone has to lose. This adversarial model is the complete opposite to God's model where two different people come together and both win. Both serve each other. Domineering patriarchy isn't God's model. Reactive feminism doesn't get you back to God's model. And even if you think, well, let's just try to find the center. Let's make everything flat and everything interchangeable. That's not God's model either. Any real relationship is going to have compromises. If two people can't agree someone's going to have to compromise. How do you work that out? God says real leadership loves, cares for, and lays down their lives for the sake of the other. All right, as we come to the end of this passage, we need to understand that the Bible's teaching here, right, this is an important bit, is not given to just make marriages work better. Now, it does do that, it does make marriages work better, but that's not the main reason why this passage is here. And so we're at our final point, the privilege. So have a look with me at the last three verses. They're up on the screen. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. So what's this profound mystery? You know, we've seen this mystery word come up before in Ephesians. It's the mystery that's revealed in the gospel. The perfect unity that God brought about to unite all people from all backgrounds under the headship of Jesus Christ. And it's this, it's this unity between Jesus and his church that's on view here in this passage. Christian wives and husbands live out this relationship of headship and submission because it reflects a greater reality. Let me ask, why do you think God chose to make marriage the closest possible relationship between humans? Do you think it might be because marriage has the privilege of modeling the greatest relationship ever between God 
and has saved people. If you're here and you trust in Jesus, this relationship with God is something that we're all a part of, whether we're married or not. And this means marriage is not the be-all, end-all. See, what is Ephesians chapter 5 all about? What is marriage really all about? What is life about? It's a beautiful partnership of headship and submission, where love and trust creates this wonderful model of unity that points forward to the ultimate marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. And so God's plan for our world, as Rowan alluded to, is a marriage. It's a relationship with Jesus and his kingdom forever. And that means every single one of us who trusts in Jesus is in this marriage. And so this leaves us with two privileges. Two privileges. The first is if you get married. Okay, some of us might get married one day. Some of us are married here. If you get married, you have the privilege of modeling the ultimate marriage of Christ and his church. You have the privilege of modeling God's unbreakable faithfulness to his people. You have the privilege of modeling Christ's loving headship and the church's willing submission. But with those privileges comes great responsibility. So shoulder those responsibilities wisely. But the second privilege is for those of us who don't get married. You know, many of us here aren't married and we might not ever get married. If you aren't married, you have the privilege of devoting your whole life, not to the model, but to the reality. You have the privilege of living for the ultimate marriage and serving the marriage, that marriage with all that you have. And this is not a second-rate option in God's kingdom. For those of us who trust in Jesus and are single, you are part of this reality. And that is a great privilege. So whether you marry in this life or you don't, we all need to live for the marriage that really matters. Not just the model, but the reality of us as the church sharing one flesh, one body with Jesus as our head. And what a great joy it is to submit to Jesus, the one who knows us, loves us, and lays down his life for our sake. And so as we hear God's word today, let me ask you, who will we let define our lives? Who will we let shape our view of the world? Who will we submit to? Let's pray and ask God's help to live in his world, his way, in our marriages, in our single lives, and for the great marriage that we have in Jesus. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you gave us your son, Jesus, while we were still sinners, that he died for us. He loved us so much. He was so faithful to us that even when we went astray, he held on to us and saved us. We pray that we might see that and be captivated by that and live lives in willing submission and joy to our head, Jesus Christ. So please help us to do that. Please help us to look to that future reality more and more each day and may that shape and mold our lives and all that we do. We do pray that we might remind each other of this and may you by your spirit continue to convict our hearts and lift our eyes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.